All right, this is the last one of these we're dumping all at once. Maybe I'll throw some more of these out here eventually. Uh, I've got some good old interviews in here that'll be uh, that'll be fun. I, I actually think I have a good concept for one called I Did It Before Rogan, where I'll put my original James Lindsay interview and my Christina Summers interview up that I had both before Rogan. But this one, this is going to be a creative one. This is going to be something that I really... This is like my weird nerd shit. That's what this is. This is about to be... Um, Bill Plimpton, who was the first person to ever animate an entire feature-length film. He's an Oscar nominee who decided he would talk to me because I met his assistant at Comic-Con who was, like, really weird that I was this excited to try to meet Bill Plimpton. And he goes, he goes, he goes, he just left. He would have, I literally walked by the booth and I go, oh, Bill Plimpton? And the guy goes, wow, that's the exact, he left because nobody was excited. He, he would have. You should have been here ten minutes. I was there with uh, Frank. Frank, I was there with Paperface. We were giving out our comic Optamo, and uh, a, a, around Comic Con, and he didn't know. And I schooled him on who Bill. Do you know who Bill Plimpton is? No. Bill Plimpton. I went to go. I just told this fucking story on another podcast, but I went to the Museum of the Moving Image. And a Chuck Jones exhibit had just ended. I went to see that. And they go, no, but we have a Bill Plimpton exhibit. And I was like, that's fucking better. That guy animates. He animates full fucking movies by himself. He draws every cell. Hand animates movies. Dude, his movie, um, fucking I Married, I Married a Sane Person, is one of my favorite fucking movies. It's about a guy who can mentally control the world. With a fucking tumor in his neck, but it's 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 got pink it's got Pink Floyd the Wall kind of feelings to it. It's his movies are they're beautiful. They're really dorky. I'm not even gonna lie. It's the kind of thing where like I'm recommending this to people very excited. They're gonna turn one of his movies on and be like, "What the fuck is Chris watching? He doesn't even really smoke weed like that." They're just they're very artsy cartoons, and I I love them. And then the second person is Kevin Eastman. And if you don't know this about me, I fucking love the Ninja Turtles still. Still, I love the Ninja... Dana, our former producer on High Society Radio, called me yesterday. This is, as we're recording this, called me yesterday and goes, Hey, you're the only person I know that knows about Ninja Turtles. I have to ask you a question. I haven't talked to Dana in three years. She goes, and she goes, my uncle died. And I go, I'm sorry. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had two copies of Ninja Turtles number one. The Eastman Lear. And I, she goes, I thought maybe you'd be interested. I was like, I can't afford that shit. She goes, yeah, I did get them appraised. They were like, it could be like 80 grand. I was like, look, I'd have to rip you off because I know they're not graded. She's like, what does grading mean? Well, because if you're a fucking dork nowadays, you have to get your comics graded by a company and they will rate your comic and tell you what it's actually worth it's the only way anybody will actually buy a collectible except me i'll go on ebay and buy some shit that's not graded because i just want to have it i'm not fucking doing this if you're buying buy gold what the fuck are you doing like, I'm not, don't buy comics buy comics because you want to fucking touch them and flip through them those old ninja turtles comics are fucking awesome i still have this is a crazy thing. This is why I'm still in an Ninja Turtles as an adult. Uh, and we talk about it in this Kevin Eastman interview. I talked to him about it, and they just started re-releasing it. It's called TMNT Urban Legends. But Image Comics put out a hyper-violent uh, Ninja Turtles comic. It was the only time since the first cartoon aired when we were kids, which is the 80s, when I was a kid. I obviously got into it then. There was another cart. There was a live action show, but it was the only time that they did not have a TV show. It was very briefly in between the live action show and the cartoon, and they needed to relicense these things because these guys did not spend their money well. Like they did not, they were not good with their Ninja Turtle money. Peter Le uh, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman. So they needed to license it to Image Comics, which made a comic that was not successful, but was in black and white. And in the first issue, Donatello gets murdered. Spoiler alert from this comic that came out 30 years ago. And then becomes a cyborg. Raphael gets his eye cut out by Shredder. This shit is fucking dope. And I was like 12 and broke. And nobody liked this comic. And it was ended up in the 50 cent bin in my comic store. And I read every single fucking issue. I fucking loved it. And so I kept up. When they put out a new cartoon, I watched them. And 
Because like you, you know, when you're when I was that age, if they put out a new Ninja Turtles cartoon, I probably would have called it gay. But because they had a hyper violent comic book in this weird transition, when I was like 12, 13, 14, you know what I mean? So there was this weird transition where I got into the hyper and then once you're 15, 16, now you can ironically watch a new cartoon. So it kept me in the loop with Ninja Turtles. And I said this. I said this is Kevin. The Ninja Turtles still exist. There's always going to be a Ninja Turtles cartoon at this point. The licenses were they created the action adventure equivalent to fucking Mickey Mouse, because it's not like a googly thing. They got swords and shit. They're fucking shit up, and that's why I like Kevin Eastman. And between the two of them, you got the guy who got you got the big money guy Kevin Eastman who did this thing. But they both started, and you got Bill Plimpton who's still doing Plimptoons, like. He did a pretty great actual Trump animation in the beginning of the Trump shit. It, it go go check out all of this, but like in the like they this that's what this is. This is us with no fucking money wanting to make stuff. Now, granted, we don't have talent either, right, Frank? Not much. No, yeah, exactly. We're we're just we're verbally shitting into mics, but. That's what get. That's what guests. That's what, that's what podcast. Like that's what we're doing. We're just grassroots, making shit, hoping people it resonates with people. Doing it out like I'm not making any money on this. Frank is doing this out of some weird fucking guilt that he has. He I'm not paying him. Frank, do you need you want any money? I just need somewhere to sleep. Stop stealing Harrington's gimmick. Look. Is this, is this, that's what these guys did. Then they did this before all this shit where you could just get on YouTube. Fucking Kevin Eastman drew a comic. Do you know how fucking hard it is to draw a comic book? It takes mad fucking time. And he just, they, they if you don't, if you never read the first issue of the Ninja Turtles, this is how hard it is to draw a comic. In the actual first issue of the Teenage Ninja Turtles comics, which sold independent press. Hundreds of thousands of copies. They kill the Shredder. They kill Shredder in the first issue and have to bring him back later. You know why? They didn't think there would possibly be a second issue. They were like, this is the... They were just making fun of Daredevil. Because Daredevil fought the Hand, which was a ninja cult, and they're fighting the Foot. Like, for anybody who doesn't know this, it's, it's very on the internet. If you're listening, if you've turned on this episode, I'm sure you know it. But for somehow you don't know this and you're just like, I'll give Chris a shot on this. Uh, the Ninja Turtles are a parody of Daredevil. So in the accident that causes Daredevil's blindness, in the original comic, the ooze then drips into the sewer and creates the Ninja Turtles. That's the fucking gimmick. This is, they just did that and they threw it out there and it's this massive thing. Bill Plimpton literally was like, I bet I can do that by myself. I think the first um, individual non-studio animated feature that got released in theaters was Bambi versus Godzilla. It has nothing to do with Bill Plimpton, but it was it was literally just Bambi in the woods and a Godzilla foot, and it was like a cult thing. It was before the internet. And, like, that guy, like, saw that or something like that or some fucking subversive shit. He was like, I bet I could do that by myself. I bet I could do that better. Snow White can suck my dick. Cinderella, you got a team of fucking animators, Walt? Fuck you. I'll make a fucking movie for fucking grown-ups that's good. I'm not going to sing like a fucking... He would probably get mad that I was cursing this much. He's a very... You could tell in the interview, he's a very reserved guy. Hates Hanna-Barbera. I get it. The repeating backgrounds are annoying. It's not very funny. But these are very good interviews with two people that I admire very much. So enjoy them. Check them out. Have fun. Good night. I'm here today with Bill Plimpton. Uh, he's a twice uh, Oscar-nominated uh, animator for the films Your Face and Guard Dog. And uh, he's done work for MTV, pretty much everything that you can think of. Um, actually, you were, uh, one of the fir- you were one of the first filmmakers to do um, full-length animations on your own, right? Without, without studio backing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yes. I, I'm wondering, like, uh, like, what is the motivation? At that, because at the time the technology wasn't really there to do it. Like, what, what was the motivation? Because it was, uh, it was after your, you, you got nominated. Actually, I want to run it back. Uh, you were doing cartoons and stuff. You were even doing covers for Screw Magazine and stuff. You made your face and mm-hmm. got nominated for an Oscar. Like, how was that 
transition. Mm-hmm. And even back then, like, how did you even get something like that scene coming from that background, the, the, the still background, the comic strip background? Um, I put together a bunch of my short films. Uh, this was in uh, 1990, I believe, um, on a video set. And um, when I put them all together, I realized that uh, it was an hour of of animation. And I thought, holy cow, I've done a feature film uh, just in shorts. So then the, it occurred to me that why not just make my own feature film uh, by myself um, and try and sell it as a film. And it really hadn't been done before that one person drew the entire film. But I did have help with uh, Maureen McKellarin, who was um, the musician that did the song for Your Face. And so she helped me write the story, and she uh, directed all the music for the film. I did all the drawings and the, the storyboards and the animation and the coloring. But she was part of the music the music side. So it was really a, a co-production uh, that was uh, uh, did very well. It was a very successful film. Okay, I understand. And um, what I was going to ask you is because I, I, I was in pre- preparation for the interview, I was watching some other stuff with you, and I saw your talk at Full Sail where you said that um, you, you know your your three principles are uh, to be short, cheap, and funny for for making a film. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was wondering, like, mm-hmm. at what point in your mind does a short film kind of become a feature? Like, even with your current film, uh, Hitler's Folly. Uh, and everything else that mm-hmm. like once you like because if you're, you're you're definitely known for the short films, so how does like something like I Married a Strange mm-hmm. Person or The Tune or any of these things kind of come out? Like like wh- at well, what point in your mind? Same thing. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, that's what I mean. Like, wh- at what point in your mind is, is it just like okay, uh, this premise now leads itself to this longer film, and then what are the challenges uh, if you're used to promoting it as a short, getting into the long format? Mm-hmm. Well, I have a lot of ideas that I think are funny. Um, as you mentioned, I was uh, doing cartoons for newspapers and magazines <clears throat> before I got into animation, so I had a lot of gag ideas that I thought were would make good short films or even good feature films. So right now I have a backlog of maybe 10 uh, feature film ideas that I'd like to do. So the question isn't, you know, what I will do. The question is what excites me the most. So uh, generally speaking, I'll do a feature film every two years and then uh, a couple of shorts a year. So I'm always doing a feature or a short, and um, it's usually which one sounds like the most fun, which one would I really enjoy to draw. And that's how I make a decision of what to do next. Okay. And do you ever, uh, are you ever working on something like a feature or, and then just have the idea for a short and you can't get it out of your head? So maybe you do that or vice versa, even? Like, do you ever put a project on hold? Because I know you have a lot of freedom. You have your own studio, uh, a small staff. You have a lot of freedom to do that. Uh, do, you, do you ever get that urge? No, because if I'm working on a feature, it's, it's really intense. And I really, I need to work on it full time. But, um, uh, I will dry, draw out the, the short as a storyboard and, um, you know, as a, as a concept and then come back to it when the feature film is finished. Okay, I understand. Um, now, what I wanted to ask you is nowadays it, it is uh, so much easier to kind of produce a, a, a film, uh, an animated film, at home on a laptop, uh, would you say that's an advantage for people? Or like, if you really have the ability, like you do, to just do it on your own, even before the technology existed, like where is the advantage? Is the, is the extra competition an advantage or and, and the distribution line? Or is it more of an advantage to be almost a big fish in a small pond when it comes to making these films? Well, right now, because of the technology, it's so much easier to do a feature film uh, on your iMac. I mean, it's, uh, you can, everything is there. The sound, the editing, the, the, uh, the coloring, the design, the drawing. So when I was doing it at the beginning in the eighties and nineties, it was a nightmare. It was very expensive, very slow, very tedious, very technical, very technological. And I hated that because almost, uh, 75% of my budget went in, into the technology of making a film. Now, now that I have a scanner and a computer, I can uh, spend only 5% of the technology, and the rest goes into the art. So I'm much happier now that uh, we have digital filmmaking. 
Well, what I kind of mean, I, I understand like it's much easier for you now, but like I'm saying, as as far as to uh, establish yourself, like if you were to be establishing yourself now, do you think it would be easier, or like because it's easier to make yeah, the work? It, you you think it would be, be much easier? Is uh is that actually why yeah, you chose with with the new film? Is that why you chose YouTube as a distribution just to maybe get some new people maybe onto your work that hadn't seen it before? Exactly. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, so Hitler's file, it came out, uh, June 3rd. Uh, I had a chance to watch it last mm-hmm. night and I was wondering, uh, what was, uh, kind of the inspiration? Cause, uh, it's a little more live. I know you do some live action stuff, but it, it's a, it's a little bit of a change from your usual style. And I was, there's a lot more dialogue, a lot more narration. And I was wondering what the, what the thought process was. Well, uh, as I mentioned before, I, I, I got the idea about, um, Three or four years ago, and and it seemed like a really fun idea to do. Uh, I was reading a magazine, and I read that Hitler was a big fan of uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, and I thought that's the most surreal image I could think of. That the most evil men in history loves these cute little elves dancing and singing and having jokes. So that night, I was thinking that uh, I remember that Hitler got rejected from art school. And then I wondered, what would happen if he actually got accepted into art school? How would the world be different? And so with that premise, uh, the whole idea of uh, Hitler being a cartoonist um, seemed really wacky and bizarre and, and funny, amusing to me. But not only that, it, it relates to Hollywood. Um, a lot of the studios are run as dictatorial uh, um, corporations, and they they take over territories just like the Nazis did. They 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 get a lot of money, and they go in and they they you know capture all the uh, all the audiences, and, and it's very similar to the movie making. So that was sort of the the metaphor that I was using um, to make the film, that to 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 uh, use the humor to to make the point. Okay. Well, I did actually notice, uh, oddly enough, like in the beginning of the film, at least, because uh, I rewatched the uh, Adventures in Plimptoons documentary, knowing that we were going to have a conversation. Um, and I, I was wondering, you did put some parallels to like some of the things you said were your inspiration, like uh, Hitler drawing. Uh, cartoon characters to get over his loneliness, which you said in that right. documentary was it was that was that intentional or was it just kind of the way the story came out? Uh, that was intentional. Okay, so even like the the Disney the Disney parallels and like uh you know your 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 favorite cartoon is Goofy or whatever like and uh it was Steamboat Willie mm-hmm. for Hitler in the film so that all kind right. of built. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of similarities between Hitler's uh, career and my career, and I, I used my career as sort of a uh, premise. To uh, for Hitler to attain uh, fame. Okay, and uh, I well, I noticed you you're having there there is a little bit I wanted to address it. There is a little bit of a, a controversy about the film online. Um, you know, with with some people criticizing it, saying it like leaves your sensibilities. But I thought even like some of the gags, like the uh, the, the two times you played the 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 supposed uh, actual audio of Hitler whistling, cracked me up both times. And I feel like that is like very mm-hmm. much your sense of humor, even in your past films. Like I was, I'm wondering how. You personally, like after working on something this hard for so long, like uh, like how are you responding to like how are you responding to the criticism or like how are you dealing with it? Well, I expected it. I, I knew there'd be criticism. Uh, it's a very um, provocative film. It's a provocative idea. I think that people who um, criticize the film um, don't have a sense of humor. Uh, but they criticize the producers by Mel Brooks, which has. Hitler's singing and dancing, uh, springtime for Hitler, or would they criticize Charlie Chaplin, who did The Great Dictator, where Hitler's playing with a big rubber ball and, and, and having a good time? It's basically the same kind of humor. And, uh, I grew up doing, um, very, um, uh, what's the word, edgy, edgy humor. Um, you know, I did stuff for the National Lampoon and the, the mode was to, to shock. To, to unsettle people, to provoke people. And that's a good source of laughter, and that's what I did with this film. So I knew there'd be some people who who are offended, but I just don't think they have a sense of humor. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, I understand. And but, I mean, I, one of these sources was uh, they reported that you you lost some staffers due to the film. Was that true, or is that it seemed a little trumped up? It's true. Yeah. And, and it was the same people, same principle. Uh, in my studio left because they didn't want to work on a Hitler film. Really. But I, I, mm-hmm. I, I almost feel like, you know, I mean, not as in-depth as you guys did with the film, but I mean, I feel like the premise, you know, I mean, stand-up comedians have joked about if only Hitler got into art school for decades. You know, right. you know what I mean? So it, it seems like a it, it seems like a, a huge leap to not just it, it's satire. I mean, it, it's pure satire. Mm-hmm. I, I, whatever. It, it's, uh, uh, I mean, w- w- like that was the reason they gave, they just didn't want to work on a film that was, uh, making light of, uh, the Nazi movement. Yeah. They, they didn't want to work on swastikas. They, they, you know, they're politically correct. And a lot of people in this country are politically correct and they don't want to deal with anything that makes light of, of, of Hitler's, uh, evilness. And certainly he was an evil man, but as a cartoonist, um, you, you, you take icons and you, you twist them and, and flip them and do strange things with icons. And certainly Hitler was one of the greatest icons of evil ever. And that's where our, I think a lot of the humor lines is to take take him as a uh, the most evil man in history and make him look like a, a happy-go-lucky artist who's trying to, trying to make people laugh. And that's so absurd, that's so surreal, that's so bizarre that I think there's a lot of humor there. Now maybe some people don't get the humor; they still have really hard feelings about about Hitler. But um, I think that there's enough distance now um, to to make uh, make humor of it. Just like Monty Python made made humor of uh, the life of Brian, you know, which is people take religion very seriously, and to to make fun of Jesus, which the Monty Python did, I thought was really really brilliant. And I'm sort of doing the same thing, taking a historical character that was very, very, um, very hated, much hated, and twisting them around. Hmm. I, under, I understand what you're saying. And, uh, it's not that. It's not that. It's not that radical. I mean, it's been done. People have used, uh, uh, we, you know, uh, uh, evil for humor for a long time. Jonathan Swift and and Ma's proposal, mm-hmm. as you know. So eating babies as a, a source of, of nutrition. Now, that's pretty offensive. And Jonathan Swift is one of the great satirists of all time. And I'm just doing the same kind of thing. It's it's nothing new, really. Okay. And, and you said uh, you said uh, kind of making light of great icons. And it, it, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I kind of want to bring up the fact that like you, you closely associate uh, Walt Disney in the film um, and have Hitler be a huge fan. And, and I'm just curious, it's... Mm-hmm. Um, was there any uh, motivation on that? With you know the uh, there is like the conspiracy theory that Walt Disney is a Nazi and uh, or a Nazi sympathizer mm-hmm. and this and that. Was that any uh, influence in the decision to make the film or so or some of your inspiration? No, I think that's a bunch of bunk. Um, I don't know where you got that. I, I think there was a book by Richard Schickel who who really trashed Walt Disney, called him a racist and a, and a Jew hater and and a Nazi and. And he, I think he admitted later on that he, he was spreading rumors. It wasn't really true. And, you know, uh, Disney had a lot of Jews working in his office. He had uh, blacks, uh, artists working in his office. And, uh, he was uh, certainly one of the, the most successful propagandists against, uh, Nazi Germany. I mean, if you look at a film called The Fur's Face, which Disney did, it was a brilliant piece of, Propaganda against the Nazis. So where you got these rumors? Um, well, no, I'm not giving credence know, to them. I'm just saying, you know, with the age of the internet, and especially with you uh, uh, putting out the film on something like YouTube, you know, there are these there mm-hmm. there are these things that uh, pro- like almost propaganda conspiratorial videos. And I was just curious if maybe you were in a way making light of them uh, as part of your inspiration for the film. No, I wasn't. I was not. Oh, okay. I, well, I, 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 I was just curious. And I, I wanted to – actually, another question I wanted sure. to ask. We are talking about the Disney – and you mentioned Disney and Fleischer by name. But uh, what I thought was funny mm-hmm. is that you don't uh, – I didn't notice uh, a mention of Warner Brothers in the film. But you are uh, – you know, hit, hit, the, uh, the film that Hitler's making is Wagner's The Ring, which is uh, – you know, Flight of the Valkyries might be the most uh, memorable Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, with the kill the rabbit. That's true. You know. Right. Now, we, we, like, was that intentional, or is it just because he's a German composer? 
you know, I forgot. It I just didn't work out to, to use Bugs Bunny and Daffy mm-hmm. Duck. I don't know why. I, I would have loved to use Warner Brothers cartoons. It just didn't uh, seem the right um, the right era because you know Bugs Bunny wasn't uh, invented till uh, I think forty one or forty two, and Daffy Duck oh, was okay. around that time too. So by then Hitler was heavily involved in the ring. So I didn't really need to use the, the Warner Brothers. <laughs> okay, I understand. Um, and well, to to kind of uh, take it back a little bit, there's something I was curious about <coughs> in rewatching the um, the Plimtoons documentary. Um, you had talked mm-hmm. about uh, you, you kind of started to flesh out shapes after the first time you took uh, acid in Prospect Park. Uh, I think was uh, mm-hmm. one of the stories, and I was wondering is like. Um, because especially some of the earlier works you do, the short films, and just how surreal they are, the sex and violence things in particular, like, was, was any of that, like, did it influence the plot or just somehow uh, the, the way the shapes fit together? Um, no, I was doing um, um, provocative, sexy drawings before the, the acid. The acid was more a stylistic uh, influence. Um, you know, I was always making drawings of sexy women in school and getting in trouble for that. So that was not uh, a result of, of taking drugs. And I only took acid once, actually. So it wasn't like I was a real acid head. But it did open up my my look and my style a lot. So I was uh, I was very uh, happy for that. Okay. Well, I mean, I do. A lot of people do say that you know, even you know, it only takes one trip to like really influence, you know, at least a style sure. of uh, creative activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I want actually wanted to ask you because uh, I, I actually was just looking at your Wikipedia page and I, I did notice that you you made a short before your face and there was about ten min, ten years between your first short and then uh, your your face and I was wondering um, was there any particular reason for the the gap or was it just a means to produce or well quite frankly I did something in 1970 at School of Visual Arts I did some experiments and they were uh, actually before that in uh, 68 when I was in Portland I did some experiments but for uh, for technical reasons none of them were finished uh like I said uh the the uh, 35 millimeter film or 16 millimeter film was very expensive and the labs were expensive the soundtrack was expensive so I never really got it together to finish those films. The only reason those films were finished was because um, through digital technology, I was able to to, um, to digitize the films and then put the soundtrack on later. So I did um, a, a film in Portland State uh, called the, um, what was it, uh, The Package, I think, something like that. And then I did a couple of experiments at School of Visual Arts. This was in 1970. And then I did another experiment in 1978 called Lucas Ear Corn, and this was 35 or 16 millimeter shot on on my floor, so there was a lot of hair and dirt, so that was never really finished. We only show these films because, um, for historical reasons, they're not really good films. Uh, and then the, the 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 next film that I did that really was finished was called Boomtown. And that was not written by me. It was written by Jules Pfeiffer, and I just did the animation and the directing on that one. But that film was really my film school. It was through that film that I was able to to learn how to um, to make a movie, technically make a movie, and um, and make it by myself. And then I went on to make Your Face. That was the next film after after Boomtown. Okay, and uh, a lot of the way uh, the the main focus of uh, distribution back then was uh, I know film festivals and like that. W- would you recommend like so, let's some let's say somebody was getting into animation now? Do you think that uh, still going through festivals because I know Spike and Mike has a festival now, and then there's uh, all uh, mm-hmm. there's a slew of animation festivals probably more than ever. Do you think that that's a better way to get your work seen or noticed than uh, something like YouTube that's or Vimeo? That's the only way to do it, because um, Nickelodeon or MTV won't look at anything that's unsolicited. And the only way they find these people is through either the Internet or a film festival. So um, that's the best way to do it. Well, what I kind of mean is, like, um, what would you say would be a better form, uh, either, like, the Internet or a film festival? Like, the, the film are the animation festivals and the film festivals a better way to kind of... You know, because you're taking the extra step of putting it in a festival. People that are there are actually seeing it, judging the film. Is that better than just, say, throwing something up on YouTube and hoping for the best? 
No, I think they're both they're both equally uh, equally um, uh, popular and and um, productive, um, and that's a good thing about today. You can do both, and there's no reason not to do both. So um, I recommend them to do both. Okay, I understand. Uh, thank you very much. Um, now I was going to. Uh, so what is uh, is your what is the next uh, film project? You're going to be working on shorts. Do you have your next feature ready to go or or like what your next yeah, project I'm doing, is? I'm doing a film called Revengeance, and uh, it's with a guy named Jim Lujan, L-U-J-A-N. He wrote it, and he did the character design. And we're starting to send it, up, send it off to festivals right now. And we have our fingers crossed that it'll get set, accepted in festivals and hopefully get uh, distribution. Mm-hmm. And then I'm working now on the new dog film. This will be my sixth dog film, and it's called Cop Dog. And it's a short, short film, about seven minutes long. So that'll be done hopefully by September. I was going to ask you about the dog film. Like, is that based on a dog you had, or just uh, just an idea you came up with, and you just keep just just keep coming back to it? Because it is like a great animated, it, it, uh, uh, very eye catching, uh, and you, it, it, ca- it catches your attention. The the energy that the dog has. Yeah, it's a dog. It's a dog I had as a kid. Uh, he was a cocker spaniel, actually, but I changed it, the breed to a pug because it's more um, more visual. And uh, but I, I love that dog. But he became very senile and barked at everything um, uh, later in his life. So I, that that was my idea. Okay. Uh, and I guess for one last question, if you if you had to say um, sure. in recent memory, like uh, what would you say is uh, the 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 piece of work that has the most of you in it? Um, I guess there's another film I'm working on, but nobody can see it now. Uh, it's it's a real country western film, which I love country western music. Uh, but that will be out till next year sometime. So um, it's called Slide, but that's something that we're working on now with the music and and, and everything. Well, that's definitely something for people to look forward to. And it, is it like influenced by your yeah. growing up in Portland, or just like it's just the it's the music you love? And yeah, my the music I love really because I used to play pedal steel guitar, so it's a. Uh, it's kind of personal. It's almost like an autobiography. Okay. All right. Well, I think that I honestly, I think that's a great note to end on, and uh, I really appreciate you doing the interview with me, Matt. All right. Uh, I'm talking to Kevin Eastman, co-creator of uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing super great. Thanks for asking. Uh, thanks for uh, doing the interview, and uh, I just wanted to. I guess I kind of want to get right into it with. Uh, uh, I, I'm obviously I'm in my early 30s, and the Ninja Turtles was a great part of my childhood, and it's kind of it's you know you're th- 31 years in is you pretty much have created the uh, the Mickey Mouse equivalent in action adventure. Does it uh, does it get tiring to you at any point? Not no not at all. I mean it's I know it sounds you know this you know you know I started in the business that was um, my love and passion and dream to write and draw and tell comic stories and. I was one of the few lucky ones that actually got to create something that's given me um, not only you know the best job on the planet, you know, a dream come true where I'm, I'm literally writing, drawing comics for for a living and, and paying my bills. But it's you know it's gone on so much further than that. But um, you know, in between turtle stuff, um, uh, which I love dearly, and, and you know, I'm having as much fun you know uh, working on the turtle stuff today as I did back in the original days, you know, 31 years ago working with Peter Laird. Um, but I've had, you know, the chance to, uh, um, you know, I bought Heavy Metal magazine and published lots of different kinds of comics. I've done a lot of my own uh, creative uh, stories from Melting Pot to Fistful of Blood to, you know, many other stories. And, and, and again, you know, but well, you, all you owned, that is really thanks. Uh, you owned thanks a Tundra Turtles, Press so. briefly, right? Uh, you had the com- the company Tundra? Yep. Uh, yeah, Tundra was, a, Tundra was a, also a dream, you know, was a, a great platform to um, to publish other people like myself that you know that you know couldn't necessarily fund their own self their own their own personal creations because they were spending so much time drawing say other people's characters to pay for their mortgage or raise their families and stuff so when I found a tundra it was to, to mainly focus on um, properties that um, 
you know, traders owned and came up with themselves and were looking for a home to, to get them out there. So now, that I, was the dream, the tundra, yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, do you think maybe it was just like a, an early thing with that? Because, I mean, that's the kind of the dream of anybody, like, to kind of create their, like, I, I, I'm a small business owner myself, so I, I understand that dream of, like, trying to get something out there and get to create a brand. And uh, I'm just kind of curious, do you think, because, like, that's kind of the direction image has gone. And even companies like IDW, they have a lot. Of, I mean, obviously, a lot of their stuff is licensed, but it's a lot of creator-owned stuff. Like that's there's like more of a marketplace for that now. Do you think maybe you were just a little early? Well, with a company like Thunder, I think it was um, it was a bit early um, in that. Um, I think in, in the kind of material that I liked was maybe a little too offbeat or a little too edgy in some cases. But you know, overall, um, um, I think that was um, you know, although Thunder might have been a little early to have the success that it could have had um, uh, at the same time it was the way the whole market was heading um, you know uh, not only European comic books um, and the kinds of stories that they were writing and doing and, and, and pushing the boundaries and you know uh, you know, bringing the manga influence and what Asian comics were doing but here in the States uh, most of all it was this perfect storm of all these influences coming in and this drive uh, for creators to um, you know, fulfill a lifelong dream, much like we do with the Turtles, which is, you know, come up with an idea um, that they personally love, that they personally want to draw, that they, they, they're excited about, and hopefully that translates into enough sales to, to allow that series to, to keep going. So, um, yeah, I think it was the way the market was heading anyway, and I'm, I'm super excited about, you know, companies like uh, Image and uh, other small, smaller publishers that emerged out of that, and uh, Dark Horse, of course, uh, as well with their um, legend brand and, and their creator own stuff that they do. And IDW, I'm the most proud of, and, and I've known well, you know, have an all the guys over there for you a long time. And I'm, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you have an exclusive deal with them now. You're going to be producing other series there uh, as well as the Turtles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I have an exclusive deal with them, and uh, you know, I've been working with them for four years on just mostly Turtle stuff, but um. Yeah, we signed a deal to do continue the turtle work, but do lots of other new stuff like this next project I have called uh, Lost um, uh, Los Angeles, which is a kind of a post-apocalyptic warriors kind of um, story. And uh, the art is very uh, heavy metalish. Is also I know like that's your kind of you know you, you're a big fan of that work and the older heavy metal stuff. I, I took the, took a look at some of the promo work. Oh, totally! It's a complete. It's a, it's it's definitely a, a love poem for me to heavy metal, and I co-created with a long time collaborator Simon Bisley we came up with the idea together but um, Simon's providing covers and I'm doing all the interior writing and drawing so uh, six issues starting later this year that sounds great um, I actually wanted to ask you because uh, the IDW series which is great I, I actually I'm a little behind because I, I like to the comics I really into I like to wait for the trades but uh, I, I obviously I know what happened in issue 44 but um, like I, I was wondering what made you guys go well, what made you decide to go kind of back to the comics because it had been years since there was like a, a an ongoing turtle series right yeah, it's always been, you know, um, you know, Image Comics did a wonderful series um, that actually was never completed, but it was awesome. Um, there's been other, you know, Peter Laird did a, a Mirage black and white series that was awesome. Um, when IDW got the license for the rights um, early on, they brought me in to, to meet with Tom Waltz, and, and he, when he showed me what he was doing, it got me truly excited to get back involved in the series. I got, you know, I had that same thrill that I had back in the old days of working with Pete, so... When they started a new series, I jumped in with both feet, and you know, thankfully, the fans have really dug what we've been doing and have been supporting it, and you know, allowing us to be able to really push the boundaries, like you know, the City Fall series with the Dark Leo, and right up through issue 44, which is the start of a new arc, which is going to be dark and edgy, and there's some some great stuff. I hope the fans will stick and wait to see what we're doing next because there's some pretty cool stuff coming up. Yeah, no, it's it's been great. Um... And I was actually going to ask you about the image series. I had actually heard you guys weren't big because f- I'd love to see. I loved those books, and it actually kept me interested in the turtles. I was turning, you know, I was turning about thirteen when the, twelve, thirteen when those came out, and it really kept me very interested in reading Ninja Turtle comics. And I had heard that you and Peter weren't a huge fan of that series, and I'd love to see a collected edition. And there was like a fan, some fans made an ending, and I'd love to see mm-hmm. like a collected collected edition. And I'd, I'd personally be the first one online to buy that. No, I, awesome. No, I appreciate that. In fact, no, I was a, a huge fan of what uh, Gary Carlson and, and Frank Fort were doing. I thought the series was 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 genius. I, I loved uh, what they were doing, and they and they put a lot of great edge in there, and some great uh, characters, and 
you know, of course, you know, you can't go wrong with Eric Larson covers. And um, yeah. I know it was uh, originally the idea was to go 26 issues, and I think they stopped at issue 23. And like you said, I did see the fan ending to it. But um, I know that, um, you know, IDW and, and Eric and, and myself have all had the same conversation that we would love to uh, find a way to um, uh, get Gary and Frank back on to finish the last couple issues and then, you know, republish the whole thing in some, you know, either repackage it and pull it out as uh, color editions and then collect them or do something collected. But it's definitely on everybody's radar. We're all fans of it. And, you know, if all the if all the stars align, um, hopefully we'll see that in the in the near future. I'd love to see that completed and see it out there. I I did. I truly I truly enjoyed that series. Yeah, I definitely like the way they incorporated some of the lesser known image characters like Night Watchman and Kid Galahad, like those kind of fringe characters. It was great. I really enjoyed that series when it was coming out. Um, yeah, same here. Uh, there was something I actually kind of wanted to ask you because uh, the Ninja Turtle started as this kind of like, um, like not not like a parody, but like, um, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, yeah, like a parody or a satire of these like Ninja comics, like the Frank Miller style, the you know the Daredevil stuff at that time. And I was kind of wondering, like, was there a point during that '80s series, particularly the syndicated one, the CBS one, was a little uh, more together? But like, was there a point where you're like, all right, now this is becoming a parody? Like, is there a point where you kind of got annoyed at it? No, no. Actually, it's, it was actually you know it's it, a couple things happened around what we what we were trying to do with the first issue was um, I was a big huge fan of uh, Dave Sim and what Dave Sim was uh, when he started publishing Cerebus the Aardvark um, in 1976. He started out drawing it. You know, he's got this little uh, Aardvark barbarian uh, running around back in the Conan period, drawn like Barry Smith was drawing Conan the Barbarian back in the back in the uh, 70s. And uh, it had a lot of parody in it, um, but it was telling a very sort of straightforward story. And it grew into, you know, he did 300 issues of it. And it was just a fantastic, legendary series. But he was a big self-publisher. And I loved the idea. I said, you know, uh, Pete and I basically agreed. We said, look, let's put all the favorite things that we love about comic books. Um, you know, every Jack Kirbyism, every Frank Miller, all the favorite, you know, the animal characters like Cerebus and Jack Kirby's mutant animal characters and Commandy. Let's new mutants, let's put these all in a blender and do a single issue, which is sort of our um, tribute in in a parody format of what we loved about comic books and what we wanted to see in a comic book. So the first issue was sort of the strongest parody issue, but we never thought there'd be a second issue um, or any other issues. And when orders started coming in, they said, well, when are you going to do a second issue? From the start of issue two, we started doing original stories, less parody, um, but at the same time, derivative in that we would pull different influences. There was a little, you know, mad scientist. There was a little Star Wars. There was a little, you know, superhero. There was, you know, a little everything sort of was put in the splendor. And um, as the issues went on, it was less and less parody and more original stories. Um, you know, by the time we got to issue, you know, seven, eight, and nine, um, they were pretty much, you know, the, the stories are almost writing themselves. Is so that we had set the turtles on a path and a trajectory that we were telling the stories that um, were true to the turtle universe, and they really weren't, you know, parodies of, of any other mainstream comic book. So, but I never, you know, I think you know, creativity is influenced whether you're, you know, a painter, a musician, a movie maker. Um, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and we're inspired by the things that inspired us to enter the field we get into anyway. So, there's always um, some element of influences that we had when we were younger it's just you know try to make it as original as you can and, and, and keep true to yourself and write things that you like and enjoy well that's actually something that's I wanted it. to ask you about because I, I watched the Turtle Power documentary to kind of prepare for this interview and uh, mm-hmm. I know you guys were protective of the property and like you were doing things that for yourself like I, I'm kind of curious what your thought process was when you finally like obviously the, there was the payday but like uh, like just thinking about licensing the stuff for the first time and like kind of not letting it be just yours anymore. Like what what was going through your head? Well, it was um, the most important thing was having the ability and the right to do that. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, the shoulders of giants we stood on and, and guys like Jack Kirby. You know, Jack Kirby, you know, created and slash co-created most of the Marvel Universe. Um, and that's the nature of the business at that time was was work for hire. So everything that he created, I mean, he had a hand in creating, you know, just about every major Marvel character that's out there making billions today, um, but never got any, you know, he never received any benefits or never had any control over his characters, never had a say of what could be done or not done with them. So when 
<laughs> we published self-published the turtles. We knew the value. We knew how precious it was to us. We never thought we want to protect our rights because it could be a movie, it could be this, it could be that. We just thought about Jack Kirby, and he said, "This is a comic book, and we want to protect our rights. These are our characters. We own them, and we want to protect that our rights to these characters." So uh, that was kind of step one. And then when we were approached to um, do them as animated uh, shows or movies or cartoons and, and all that stuff, it because we owned and controlled everything Turtles, it was completely and totally 100% up to us if we wanted to do those kind of deals or not. And the only way we would do those kind of deals, the only way we agreed to do those kind of deals is because we had full say. We had full approval over the scripts. We had full approval over the look of the characters. We had full approval over the final designs of the toys. We were truly blessed and truly lucky that we had complete control over our characters. So everything anybody saw the turtle especially in the early 10 15 years everything that happened with the turtles was with my uh, approval and pete's approval and, and our blessing and usually you know our complete involvement um, we were involved in all 300 cartoon shows and all the movies and every year for the to new line of toys we would design half the toy line um in our in our studio pete and i and some of the artists that we hired so yeah we were we were in control and you know everything that we allowed to happen with them, we allowed to happen with them. The benefit was we made money on them, um, and it wasn't some big corporation making all the money. We made the money, um, and we were very, very lucky, very blessed. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's a great thing to have never uh, sold. The, you know, uh, I know you at one point briefly uh, sold your portion, your right to them to Peter, but then you guys reformed a partnership at some point. Is that correct? No, actually, we we no basically. Um, uh, the the timeline is in the late 90s. Um, I sold controlling rights, um, creative rights to Peter, and, it, and I retained, uh, you know, uh, partial ownership of the turtles. Then, I think three or four years later, um, uh, I ended up selling out the rest of the interest I had in the turtles. So then Pete was in 100% control of the turtles for the next five or six years. Um, or so, um, and uh, then eventually Pete um, wanted to retire, so he sold everything to Viacom, um, and that was about four years ago, um, and it was around that time, you know, so I had no rights to it at that time, but when Viacom bought the, the rights to the Turtles and started setting up uh, cartoon shows and comics and movies, um, they brought me back in as a consultant to work on, to help them sort of guide their you know, the new visions of what they wanted to do and all those things. So I weirdly ended up, you know, these days over the last four or five years, I've spent more time on turtles than I used to back in the early days with Pete. And, uh, you know, quite simply having the time of my, I love working on the new cartoon show. I love working on the new IDW comic series, especially. And, uh, had a great time working with, uh, Jonathan Leavesman, um, at Paramount on the, uh, on the last turtle movie. It was, it was a blast. That's great. Um, I, I, I do love your covers on the new Turtle stuff. I know we're just about out of time. Uh, I just want to ask you one quick question. I know you're more of a Raphael fan than anything else. I've loved Raphael. There's the sarcasm since I was a kid. And I was curious, which toys, which Turtles toys sold the most in the in the boom, in the heyday? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a toss-up because, um, you know, I think uh, – you know, and as far as my love of the turtles, you know, Michelangelo was the first turtle ever drawn. Um, so he's always been a, a partial favorite to me. But, you know, I don't love um, any of the turtles less than the others because it's like, which which child is your favorite kind of thing? You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I get you. Um, but, but Raphael I love. It's like when, I, when I'm writing a story and I want to sort of take a turtle character um, into a – push him into places that the – uh, a little bit further than the rest, I always choose Raphael because he's you know the hothead. He's a little bit unpredictable, and I usually team him up with Casey Jones, who's equally unstable, I guess, if you will. And so when I tell stories, I love to team up Casey and Raphael because I can do more things with them than I can the other characters. Um, but back in the day, I think uh, it was um, you know if the kids were buying um, the turtles, they usually wanted to get the whole team. So I know that. For the most part, they sold pretty evenly, but I know Michelangelo was a huge favorite because he was always cracking the jokes, and he's a funny one. But I know Raphael was, was right up there as, as one of the best sellers. Um, okay. But I think, you know, we're talking probably small percentages because I think, um, you know, when kids bought the turtles, um, they eventually want to collect all four so they could 
play with them all together um, in the play sets. And, and that's and always that the goal, stuff, but so. sometimes you can only have one. I mean, everybody's yeah, got just, a parent, no one. You, <laughs> yeah, get one. Well, you want the whole superior team, I guess, yeah. So yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for the conversation, Kevin. This is actually a huge thrill for me. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad that it all worked out. And uh, um, appreciate the, the time. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much, man. Well, show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. For if we don't find the next whiskey bar, I tell you we must die. I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you.